Nuclear radiation and its impact on health. What do we know for sure? Not much, because the nuclear industry, its regulators, and the government just haven't been looking for what might prove to be a wee bit embarrassing to their testosterone-laden technology. So it takes a scientific study, conducted by those not affiliated with the nukesters, to dig a little deeper in new areas and learn some hard truths. So when a genuine expert in this area who's been involved with a new study tells you, We found that near six nuclear plants in the United States, it was very consistent what we found. Number one, that the levels of strontium-90 near the plants were much higher than in teeth of children living far from the plants. Number two, we found that as time went on, the levels got higher and higher for people born in the late 90s compared to the 1980s. And the third and the biggest one, and this was the first look at health. We found that in these areas, there was a exact match between trends in strontium-90 in teeth and trends in new cancers diagnosed in children under five years old. When one went up, the other went up. When one went down, the other went down. Well, when epidemiologist Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project lets you know about possible nuclear reactor radiation dangers to children, your children, and not just historically, but now. And he has peer-reviewed studies to back it up, along with other studies that are in the pipeline. You get yet another glimpse at the forever nature of the dangers that come from that deadly radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk in-depth with Joseph Mangano. He is an epidemiologist and founder of Radiation and Public Health Project. Here, we talk about the baby tooth study, not only the original one that supported President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev in signing a ban on atmospheric nuclear tests, but a new set of studies made possible by an astonishing discovery of materials left over from the Cold War. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than will be allowed at any Thanksgiving table that I know of. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 22, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Ukraine, 
Shelling at the 6th nuclear reactor Zaporizhia site on Sunday, November 20th, damaged a radioactive waste and storage building, cooling pond sprinkler systems, an electric cable to one of the reactors, and storage tanks. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, stamped his foot and called the explosions completely unacceptable while saying, whoever is behind this must stop immediately. Like Ukraine would actually bomb their own energy infrastructure? Grossi, who is infamous for having said at the COP27 event that the problem is not nuclear reactors, the problem is war. I wish some journalists would call him and Russia out before something unthinkable and irreversible happens. On Saturday, Ukraine's Kamonitsky nuclear power plant in the central western part of that country lost all access to the electricity grid for more than nine hours due to military attacks and forced their two nuclear reactors to temporarily rely on diesel generators for backup power. Here in the U.S., in a rare victory, the U.S. Department of Energy turned down Holtec's request for funding to reopen the dangerous Palisades nuclear reactor. For what might follow, here's Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Sometimes good things happen, or at least the right thing. Sometimes we win one. You may remember that Entergy Corporation, the former owner of the Palisades single-unit nuclear power plant in Covert, Michigan, shut that reactor last May. This was a huge relief because Palisades was, and is, arguably the most dangerously degraded reactor in the United States. There were so many things wrong with it, the worst embrittled reactor pressure vessel in the country, a severely degraded reactor lid, and worn-out steam generators. As my Beyond Nuclear colleague Kevin Camps, who's from Michigan, said, we are thankful that this reactor has indeed been shut down before it melted down. But there was a wrinkle. The reactor was sold to Holtec, a notorious U.S. company with a spotty track record, which has been buying up reactors in order to decommission them. But when the Biden administration started dangling funding in front of struggling reactor owners in an effort to keep nuclear power plants running, Holtec made a grab for a share of that $6 billion funding being offered under the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. Luckily, there was a problem. Holtec does not have an operating license for Palisades, nor has it ever operated a nuclear reactor, so another company would need to be found to do that. The reactor was out of fuel, and of course there were all those technical and safety problems that would have to be addressed. Late last week, the U.S. Department of Energy turned down Holtec's request for funding from the Civil Nuclear Credit Program, which potentially would have given the green light to Holtec to reopen Palisades. Newly re-elected Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer had somewhat inexplicably supported Holtec's bid to reopen Palisades. Was it merely a strategic move to try to win votes? Perhaps she is now secretly breathing a sigh of relief that she won't have to follow through. Reopening Palisades would once again have put the safety of the Great Lakes, the drinking water supply for 40 million people, at risk. The next step, and one that so far the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has consistently dodged, is to take advantage of yet another closed U.S. reactor and examine it fully. It's what at Beyond Nuclear we describe as an autopsy. Before issuing license extensions to other similar reactors, surely we should know what effect the many decades of a very harsh operating environment has had on key reactor parts and safety systems. 
This would mean taking real world age samples from closed reactors rather than modeling aging effects on a computer as is currently the practice. A report by the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory released in December 2017 actually recommended what they term harvesting in order to inform and support subsequent license renewals. But after Beyond Nuclear's Paul Gunter drew attention to the report at an NRC meeting, it miraculously vanished from three websites. When it returned, it had been scrubbed of scores of mentions of technical knowledge gaps. Surely now, with all we know about the terrible condition of Palisades, the NRC should order a full autopsy on the plant before Holtec buries it in what is effectively an unmarked grave. As the supposed safety regulator, the agency owes this to the millions still living around other reactors whose operating licenses could be extended out to 80 or even 100 years. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. That's the good news. Here's some more of the bad. The Department of Energy has conditionally awarded Diablo Canyon Nuclear Plant in Northern California with $1.1 billion to forestall a shutdown. The two reactors were slated to be shut down in 2024 and 2025. And we spell out the full background on the reactors in Nuclear Hot Seat, number 585 from September 6, 2022. More money, money, money to the nukesters from the federal government's nuclear spending spree. In Pike County, Ohio, the U.S. Department of Energy has awarded $30 million to produce nuclear fuel at the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon. This despite radiation contamination being found in Zahn's Corner Middle School in Pike County, which closed the school down in May of 2019. In Japan... The International Atomic Energy Agency has said that a report they will release early next year on Japan's plan to discharge radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean from Fukushima Daiichi will, quote, provide confidence to Japanese society, neighbors, and all IAEA member states. The IAEA is treating the release of this water as a done deal, despite vocal objections from China, Taiwan, Micronesia, environmental NGOs, and the Japanese public. As for other delusions of nuclear safety in Japan, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None that's out of week. Maintaining peace is crucial, but the prevailing world situation is difficult. So said Tetsushi Nakamura president of Growthview, makers of, welcome to the 1950s, bomb shelters. Hey, when the world's facing Armageddon, treat it like a business growth opportunity. The shelters measure 10 square meters, or a little over 107 square feet. They have walls that are 80 millimeters, or 3.15 inches thick, lead panels, air filtering equipment, no word on where additional air will come from after nuclear winter and raging wildfires, but they will have four cameras through which you can monitor the destruction of the planet from the safety of your hidey hole. Welcome to the 1950s. My favorite talking point? The facility can double as a study or a child's room. Great messaging for kids. But data from the Japan Nuclear Shelter Association 
Can you believe that such a thing exists? But it does. It shows that there is a market for this kind of product in Japan, and all it costs is 6.6 million yen, or the equivalent of 44,800 U.S. dollars, including tax. You know, the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons would be much more cost-effective and much more effective. But until that becomes planetary law, Tetsushi Nakamura and the company Growthview, you are this week's nuclear hot seed, none that's out of the week. Internationally, an analysis by Paul Dorfman from the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex shows that Putin, Russia, and Russian-controlled Kazakhstan supply 42% of all uranium of all reactors worldwide. 20% of that uranium is required for the European Union, 14% for the United States, and nearly 30% of Russian enrichment services are also needed. This specifically in the creation of the high-assay, low-enriched uranium, or HALU fuel, which is required to run any of the new small modular nuclear reactors that are being proposed. The worldwide need for Russian uranium and nuclear processing is undoubtedly one of the, if not the major reason, that all matters nuclear have not been included in sanctions that have come down against Russia. And while the U.S. has no operating small modular nuclear reactors, nor have they been built, nor have designs been approved. The U.S. is going to help Thailand develop a new class of nuclear reactors. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I've got a question for you. Do you appreciate hearing the week's nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat? Do you appreciate having access to in-depth interviews with genuine experts on the stories that are hitting the headlines? Do you want to see the show continue? Well, the only way that's going to happen is if you help us. The core of Nuclear Hot Seat is the honest information we provide, along with shout-outs to activists and activities opposing nuclear around the world. Where else would you get all this in one easy-to-swallow weekly package? Well, that's why we provide it. But it's not going to continue to happen without your support. This show runs on donations, your donations. And as we go into the holiday season, we need your year-end help more than ever. Now, there's going to be good news about this. I'm only awaiting a final piece of paperwork before it comes through. But I will hope to be able to share this good news with you about donations within the next week. It will make it easier for you to donate and continue to get much more nuclear information, more consistently than you'll ever get from the New York Times or any other member of mainstream media. So listen up, because this is important. You can help keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running by making a donation of any size. It's easy. Just go to Nuclear Hot Seat. We've got a red Donate button there. Click on it, follow the prompts, and you can make a one-time donation of any size. Or help sustain us while sticking to your budget and send a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month. Or more. Help us this month and every month so that we can keep providing you with the most reliable nuclear information from the longest-running program of its type in the world. NuclearHotSeat.com, red button, and know that whatever you do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. 
Now here's this week's featured interview. It was baby teeth that helped convince U.S. President John F. Kennedy and Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev to sign the Limited Test Ban Treaty in 1963. This is the treaty which prohibited nuclear weapons tests in the atmosphere, underwater, or in outer space. These teeth revealed that children were receiving ever-increasing doses of radioactive strontium-90 that deposited in their teeth and bones. This, in turn, increased their risk of developing cancer or other radiation-linked diseases not only in childhood, but throughout their lives. While Russia's nuclear saber-rattling over Ukraine is testing both countries' continuing acceptance of this restriction and this treaty, for now, it's still holding. But until very recently, nowhere has there been a comparable study of the impact of radiation exposure from nuclear reactors on the health of children who live in proximity to them. To that end, today's guest will give you a clear picture of the history of the first baby tooth study and what's coming up that could potentially provide, you'll pardon the expression, a bombshell in the plans of the nuclear energy industry to keep expanding. Joseph Mangano is a health researcher, an epidemiologist, who has served Radiation and Public Health Project since 1989. Mangano is author or co-author of 33 medical journal articles on radiation health and is the author of the books Low-Level Radiation and Immune System Damage, an Atomic Era Legacy, and Radioactive Baby Teeth, The Cancer Link, this latter book from 2008. Now, he's involved with putting together a landmark examination of the impact of reactor radiation releases on children living near them, a study made possible by an amazing discovery of hidden epidemiological treasure. I spoke with Joseph Mangano on Monday, Joseph 21st, 2022. Joseph Mangano. It's always great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, it's always good to be here. We're talking about the baby tooth survey today, and it has some recent incarnations. But what I want to start out with is what was the situation back in 1945 Manhattan Project? We exploded three atomic bombs, the Trinity test in New Mexico and then Hiroshima and Nagasaki. At that time, what was known about the impact of radiation on the human body? 1945 is a long time ago, but it's still very relevant in the issue today of radiation health. It's relevant because the use of the radioactivity, what we call ionizing radiation, began with a military purpose. It was World War II, and uh, the Adam had been split by scientists, meaning that a potential for a military weapon, a weapon of mass destruction, the atomic bomb, was possible. Furthermore, there was great concern that the scientists in Nazi Germany were working on a bomb project. So the United States began an incredibly important project to create an atomic bomb before the Germans got there. Well, that was in, in late 1942. We get to 1945, and the United States had developed an atomic bomb. By this time, the Nazis had surrendered. 
It turned out they, they never really did much with their program anyway. But as you said, three bombs were exploded. One in the desert of New Mexico, two on human targets in Japanese cities. The quick answer to your question is, what did they know? They knew. They knew from the get-go that this was not just another weapon, that this was much, much more powerful. They had tested animals, for example, injecting them with radioactive elements that were produced when an atomic bomb exploded. Basically, they all got cancer and died. I'll even give you another example. This is, this is maybe more disturbing. In 1943, again, two years before the bomb was successfully exploded, there was a letter sent from J. Robert Oppenheimer to Enrico Fermi. And these were two of the eminent scientists working on the bomb. Oppenheimer's letter, which was kept secret for 40 years, it became public in 1985, and it's easily found on the internet now, said that if the atomic bomb does not succeed, we should consider putting radioactive strontium, which is one of the many chemicals developed, not in nature, but only when an atomic bomb explodes, in the food supply of Nazi Germany. And only if it were to kill at least 500,000 people. I can give you a, a, a citation reference. It's easily available on the internet. So they knew from the get-go that this was dangerous. And of course, after the first bomb was exploded in New Mexico, there was Oppenheimer with the famous quote, I have become death destroyer of worlds. It was much more powerful than they, they even expected. At that time, from my reading, and I've done extensive research into the very early days and how radiation was not reported on in the media and why. But at that time, fallout seems to have been a new concept. How did the scientists relate to that after Trinity when they realized that there would be radiation carried in the wind, in the dust, and be falling out on communities distant from the actual explosion of the bomb? The actual explosion of the bomb taught them that the fallout, these tiny metal particles that went up in the mushroom cloud and was propelled by wind and returned to Earth by precipitation, went much further than they thought. And that was a concern. However, you, you must understand that health and safety concerns played a backseat to use of the bomb. This was wartime. And again, there was a great concern that someone else was going to develop a bomb before the U U.S. did. And this is so important because even today, so many years later, health and safety concerns are in the backseat of both atomic weapons and, and atomic power. Starting in 1945, researchers at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, or what became known as the National Laboratory, speculated that the most worldwide destruction from the bomb could come from radioactive poisons. What, if anything, did they do to quantify that? They did very little to quantify that, at least in 1945. As time went on, and not much time, because four years later, the Soviet Union successfully developed their own atomic bomb, and the race was on between the two superpowers to see who could develop, test, and develop the most atomic bombs in order to fight, quote, the inevitable nuclear war, which many 
not just people, but many leaders, all military leaders on both sides, many political leaders on both sides. So this was an inevitability, and the point was to, quote, win a nuclear war, which now we think is, is absolutely ludicrous, but they were quite serious. And there are many estimates of how many casualties would have occurred from an all-out nuclear war. Most of them were probably underestimates, but the point was tens of millions right away. And of course, right after an atomic war, it doesn't mean everything got back to normal. No, there would have been a nuclear winter. The atmosphere would have been coated with fallout so that the sun wouldn't shine, so that the crops wouldn't grow, the food supply would have been contaminated. It would have been the end of, end of the world. L luckily, at some point, Probably really after the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962, leaders came to their senses that, you know what, this isn't going to work. Hmm. Nuclear war is not going to be won by anybody. That was a, another good quote, Khrushchev. In nuclear war, the living would envy the dead. That's how bad it was. So let's take this back to a little bit before, because the study we're going to be talking about did play a major role in the conversations between Kennedy and Khrushchev. But earlier than that, in the 1950s, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is the precursor to both the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the Department of Energy, asked the question, how many nuclear weapons can be detonated in support of weapons development or during a war before imperiling humans from radioactive fallout? What was done to try and come up with an actual answer to that? What did we as a government officially do? Beginning in 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission realized that the fallout from those mushroom clouds was circling the globe. It was getting all around the world and it was returning to Earth uh, in, again through precipitation and then ingested by humans through the food chain. Finally, in 1953, they decided, let's see how much radiation is getting into people's bodies. And they began a rather secretive program of collecting bones from autopsy, people who had died. And they tested these bones for a chemical called strontium-90. Strontium-90 is not found in nature. It only occurs when an atomic bomb explodes or a nuclear reactor operates. They uh, take the form of, of tiny metal particles. They're highly radioactive. And since they're chemically similar to calcium, they enter bone and teeth when they are ingested through milk, through water, through food. The AEC from the beginning found rapidly rising levels of strontium-90 in the bones. And they also found varying levels according to geography. It was higher in the northern hemisphere than the southern and so forth. But the big one was it was going up and up as the years went on. But again, they didn't really make much of this public. How did the baby tooth study get started and who was behind it? Baby tooth study originated in 1958. Again, remember that the, the bomb testing had been going on for a dozen years, and it had been increasing. The Cold War was worsening at this point. In August of that year, a scientist from the National Institutes of Health, Herman Kalkar, wrote an article calling for a, an international 
milk tooth census. In other words, it's a baby tooth census study around the world. And specifically to test baby teeth for this chemical I described, strontium-90. The article got a lot of interest, including scientists at Washington University in St. Louis, which had a number of faculty members that were not just researchers and scientists, but they were also very socially concerned. Like others, they realized that not only are we uh, dangerously close to having an all-out nuclear war, but while we're waiting, this very dangerous stuff is piling up in people's bodies, and especially the bodies of children and, and infants who are most vulnerable to a dose of radiation, much more so than adults. So they had a meeting, December 1958, of scientists and citizen leaders. The citizens group was called the Committee for Nuclear Information, and they resolved to conduct a study of baby teeth, where they would collect baby teeth, send them to a laboratory to uh, measure the levels of strontium-90 in the teeth, and to use them specifically to get a treaty banning above-ground tests. That was the real reason for it. And over the next dozen years or so, an incredible 320,000 teeth were collected, many from the St. Louis area, but from all over the, the, the country and even, and even uh, around the world. And what they found simply was, as time went on, the levels were getting higher and higher and higher. Now, the first journal article was published November 1961 by one of the St. Louis scientists, Louise Reese, in the journal Science. And true to their goal of, of the test ban treaty, this article was sent directly to President Kennedy's science advisor, Jerome Wiesner. Wiesner read the article and he sat with John F. Kennedy and discussed it and its implication. We know this. We don't have any, any tapes of their conversations. However, two years later, when Kennedy gave a speech in behalf of the test ban, he called out the health of children, quote, with cancer in their bones, with leukemia in their blood, with poison in their lungs, unquote. And specifically with cancer in their bones, that was strontium-90 because we know strontium goes to the bone and, and teeth and it causes all cancers, but especially bone cancer. So that's what happened. So word went out to collect these teeth. Samples came in from all over, literally around the world, and had these results. And President Kennedy is citing this. What was the result of the findings and what was its impact on the political environment? Eventually, the findings showed that from the beginning of bomb testing until the peak, right before the above-ground tests were banned, the strontium-90 levels in teeth were somewhere around 50 to 60 times higher than the beginning of the testing. Right? Not 50, 60 percent, 50 times, which is you know 5,000 percent higher. It was out of control. And this was used in further journal articles and also in testimony to the U.S. Senate by Dr. Eric Reese, husband of, of Louise Reese and also a 
Washington University position to the Senate on behalf of the test ban treaty. Finally, there were, in, in addition to the outreach, outreach to Kennedy and to the, to the Senate, the Committee for Nuclear Information sent lots and lots of letters to leaders as well, to political leaders. Barry Commoner, who was a distinguished biologist who played a prominent role in the study, has said that the factor that changed the U.S. Senate's vote, he called the U.S. Senate a hornet's nest of cold warriors, really weren't interested in, in banning tests, that really just ordinary mothers, ordinary housewives were sending letters, not just saying stop the test, but there is strontium-90 in my child's milk and in, in my child's body, and it's getting worse and worse, and it's going to imperil the health of my children. He credited that with helping to turn the tide, and the test ban passed easily, 80 to 19, and became law in 1963 ending the virtually all above-ground tests around the world. So it accomplished the ending of the above-ground tests. Where, if anywhere, did the influence of the Baby Tooth Project fall short? Again, it, it did something magnificent because the, the test ban really saved millions of lives. We don't know exactly how many. There's been estimates 12 to 24 million in the U.S. alone. And it did inspire uh, similar studies in other countries. What it didn't do was take a look at how did the fallout harm public health, especially the health of the young children and infants. It was discussed. Dr. Commoner had discussion. It was it was an idea of his, and it was it was also an idea in an article in, in Newsweek magazine in 1960. What about the health of our children who are growing? How, how is the fall affected? But it was never done because of technical issues of the testing teeth. You would have had to track children for a long time. So the study shut down 1971. So if the study shut down in 1971, what was the follow-up that was done on it? There was no follow-up. The study ended the committee went on and changed its name to Committee for Environmental Information and did other things. The office closed and that was it, or so people thought for decades, for, for over 30 years. Now, at what point in this time span was the Radiation and Public Health Project founded and did you take a stance on radiation's impact on public health? Our PHP was founded in the late 1980s. We are an organization that does research and education on the health effects of exposures to atomic bomb fallout and to nuclear reactor emissions. And of course, early in our work, we learned about the St. Louis Baby Tooth Study. We got to know a number of the people who worked on the study, both scientists and citizens, and in the 1990s, we decided to do our own baby tooth study, not testing the bomb fallout levels, but for children who live near nuclear reactors and were getting exposed from emissions. How extensive was the study that RPHP was able to do? The RPHP study collected and tested 5,000 baby teeth, which I know it doesn't come near 320,000 teeth, but it was enough so that 
we were able to publish five medical journal articles on the results. We found that near six nuclear plants in the United States, it was very consistent what we found. Number one, that the levels of strontium-90 near the plants were much higher than in teeth of children living far from the plants. Number two, we found that as time went on, the levels got higher and higher for people born in the late 90s compared to the 1980s. And the third and the biggest one, and this was the first look at health, we found that in these areas, there was a exact match between trends in strontium-90 in teeth and trends in new cancers diagnosed in children under five years old. When one went up, the other went up. When one went down, the other went down. That's what we were able to document, which really hadn't been done in St. Louis earlier. What was the result? What was the response to the study that you did on these 5,000 baby teeth? There were two responses. One was a very positive response from citizens and from other environmental leaders about how important it was that we understand that even these relatively small amounts of radioactive exposure were harmful to our children. The other response came from groups like the Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which did everything it could to degrade our work, which, of course, is not just our work. We didn't make it up. It was done in a lab. We published it in five peer-reviewed journal articles where experts reviewed it and said this is worthy of publication. And, of course, the other thing is uh, they had no, no response as to what could have caused these levels. They claimed it was leftover bomb fallout. Well, that's very strange because you mean years ago when the bombs are falling down, the particles knew that we should go closer to where new nuclear plants are going to be built, all right? So the whole thing is nonsense. So it, it, it was a mixture, but that's, of course, this work is done in a very politicized environment. That's why we're trying to stick to science. In 2001, a major discovery was made at a Washington University storage unit just outside of St. Louis. What was that discovery and what is the significance of it? Remember that until June 2001, everybody, me and all the St. Louis people I have spoken with, uh, believed that all the teeth had been tested. This changed when the phone call came from Daniel Cole, a biology professor at Washington University, who we knew, who said, hey, we're looking for storage space at this, it's kind of like an old ammunition bunker, like a cinder block building. And we found teeth. And I said, what do you mean you found teeth? We found baby teeth from the original study. And I said, oh, that's, that's good. And then the next day he called back and said, you don't understand. There are thousands and thousands of teeth here. Okay. He asked the Department of Biology's chair if the department wanted them. He said, no, we have no use for them. He contacted Barry Commoner and asked if he had any use. He said, no, I have no use, but by calling Radiation Public Health, they're doing a study on baby teeth. He said, you can have them if you want, otherwise we're going to throw them out. And I said, oh, please, please don't do that. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that will not work. So the university donated the teeth collection to us. And... 
spoil, but what a collection. How many teeth were there and what form were they in? How were they put together or sorted or annotated? Out of the original 320,000 or more teeth, just over 100,000 teeth remain. And what remains for each tooth? There's a tooth encased in a small manila envelope, and the envelope is paperclipped to a three by five card with information on the tooth and the tooth donor. You know, John Smith, born uh, January 1, 1960, parents, John and Mary, type of tooth, address, was it decayed, was the child bottle fed or, or, or breastfed, and so on. We recognized instantly that this was a tremendous health research opportunity, especially because so much time had gone by. The, the tooth donors were getting older. And you know, some were developing diseases or, or, or dying. So that was our instant goal was to find out if, in fact, bomb fallout had increased risks of diseases like cancer by using strontium-90, which is still detectable in teeth. It decays very, very slowly. Once you had these teeth delivered to you with this wealth of information, what was the process you had to go through in order to make this usable and start doing the research on it? We did one small study. And the reason it was small is because of lack of funds. We're a relatively small nonprofit group. We did publish the results of that one study, and we found that we used 60 teeth, 20 of which were people who had died of cancer by age 50, and 40 people who were alive at age 50 and were had no health major problem, major health problems. We found that the cancer teeth had more than double the strontium 90 of the healthy teeth. And we published that. Now it's just a relatively small study. It's just a start, but it did confirm our belief that fallout increases cancer risk. That's a pretty shocking statistic. That's one third of the teeth belong to children who had more strontium-90, and they died before the age of 50. What is next? Are you in another study now? Is there another one planned? Is there more than one planned? What's the next step beyond that study? The next step was only made possible by a second surprise phone call, which occurred in 2016. A colleague of mine, who was a professor in Massachusetts, told me about Mark Weisskopf, who is a public health professor at Harvard, who is a neuroscientist, but has worked extensively with teeth. And he was told about this tooth collection and became very interested. We had several talks. Long story short, Mark was able to secure a five-year grant from the National Institutes of Health. Harvard University is the recipient of the grant, and RPHP is a contractor. RPHP keeps the possession of the teeth, but Harvard has agreed to do a number of things. And, and the first year was pretty much dedicated to the entry of the information on those three by five cards into a massive Excel file, which makes planning of health studies so, so much easier. We found too that out of the 100,000 plus teeth, there are 37,000 people involved. Some gave more than one tooth. 
and they come from people born not just in St. Louis, but every one of the 50 states had at least 12 teeth, except for Vermont with four. It's small. They can get away with that. (laughs) Yes, they can. And also people born in 45 different countries. So this is a tremendous opportunity for us. We're going to be doing a number of things. First thing we're doing is we're collecting more baby teeth near nuclear reactors. You're talking about now, kids who are babies now and losing their baby teeth now. Yes. And we have selected the Fermi nuclear plant, which is just south of Detroit. We have collected dozens of teeth from there. And this sets up the comparison of who got more strontium-90. Was it the people born in the 1950s and 60s who got bomb fallout? Or was it today's children? The answer is, I don't have the first clue. No one has the first clue. It's never been done before. But in 2023, we are going to make that comparison. It's so key because we'll know better that the baby boomer generation, the ones born in the 50s and 60s, were harmed by the bomb fallout. If reactor emissions are anything close to what the bomb fallout was, we can predict this is what's going to happen to our children over their lifetimes. It's going to be a repeat of what happened to their grandparents in terms of cancer risk. That becomes a very powerful tool about how much nuclear power do we want to have, especially with these old, aging, corroding, leaking reactors. That is an astonishingly powerful study to be engaged in. And while we all have projections as to what the results may be, Nobody knows. However, we will know. So where is that study now? How far has it progressed and what's needed to make it go further? The teeth are ready. We have enough teeth from Fermi to to make a, a, a good study. What we're doing now is selecting a laboratory, which sounds very easy, but it is not because it takes a very specialized lab with experience. Uh, We have candidates and we are going to try out each of them to see who is able to most accurately test strontium-90 in baby teeth. And once that's done, out go the sets of teeth. We will blind the labs. We won't tell them, here's a batch of teeth, here's a batch of teeth. We'll say nothing else about them, which is standard in, in research. So they won't be biased. And... We will get results and we will publish them in medical journals. We already, in addition to the article published in 2011, we have just had an article accepted and it's going to be published in March 2023 on the beginnings of of this study and the historical record. The next article will be the results of the bomb test teeth from older people and reactor emissions teeth from today's kids. What, if any, negative pushback are you getting on these from those who are invested in the nuclear industry? Or hasn't that started yet? It hasn't started yet. We did that one article in 20, but we got some good attention. It was written up in the New York Times, but we haven't really heard much. But once we have this kind of information, I'm sure there's going to be pushback. I'm sure it's going to be no, the methods were wrong and the sampling was wrong and, and the conclusions are wrong and everything is wrong. But again, we have no proof from any any government that proves that 
bomb fallout was safe or that reactors are safe. It is just a slogan. We don't deal in slogans. We deal in evidence. And this, we think, is the best kind of evidence because it's in the body. It's not just a guess how much people got. We know how much people got. What is the next step to keep this moving forward? What do you need and what might listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to assist you? What can be done is to contribute more teeth. That's that's the best, not just from the Fermi plant, but we would like to get teeth from children living near other nuclear plants around the country. It, it's important that what's found near one plant is essentially duplicated near, near other plants. You know, the, the, the more plants we do our research on, the better it is, the stronger the find. Just like our study of 5,000 teeth, where we showed similar patterns of strontium-90 going up and, and higher near the closer you got to nuclear plants. So, so please give teeth. And that can be done by going to our website, radiation.org, and sending teeth to the address on the website. I will also have that up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website so that people can have a shortcut to what they need to send and what they have to do to be able to send it so that it's usable. And then, of course, the next thing, and we will be making an effort once the, as the articles come out to get as much attention as possible, as it is a number of articles written by us and about us in the popular press and in publications like the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists about this very unique study and what it potentially can do for our knowledge of the health hazards of the atom. We're still very poorly informed about what atomic bombs and nuclear reactors have done to people. But that goes back to what we said a few minutes ago about the original point that the atom was used for national security purposes. And that came first and health and safety took a backseat where it still is today. We're trying to move it forward. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to add at this time? It's important to know that even though RPHP is doing this work, it is supported by citizens. It's supported by regular people who are concerned about public health, who are concerned about their, their children's health and are skeptical, highly skeptical, that when people say, well, nuclear power is safe and nothing, no health risk was caused by atomic bomb tests, that's not really true. They want information. And it especially happens when we run into people whose child has cancer, who themselves have developed a radiation-sensitive cancer like thyroid cancer. They have quite a lot of concerns here, and they want answers, just like they did many years ago with the test ban treaty. Hopefully, those who hear this interview will pass it on to others and will respond in such a way, either through baby teeth or other forms of support for the work that you're doing, because this is the cornerstone. This is important to all of our futures in the fight against nuclear, to have scientific information, peer-reviewed, blind study, to tell us exactly what we're up against so that it's not a he said, she said, and they've got more money to go into PR than we do. So they can out-shout us anytime they want to, but let the truth be told. Crucial work that you are doing, Joe. 
I look forward to speaking with you in 2023 about the results of this study or this phase of the study so that I can share it with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. And for now, thank you as always for being my guest on this week's show. My pleasure. That was Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. As you heard, RPHP still needs donations of baby teeth. So no matter where you live, and no matter how close to or far from a nuclear reactor, send in your child's teeth. We will have a link up to information as to where to send those teeth, or you can check out the organization directly at radiation.org. We will also link to a recent story in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists entitled, I Gave My Baby Tooth to Science, Project Sunshine's Role in the Limited Test Ban Treaty and Cutting-Edge Pollution Research. It's written by Robert Alvarez and Joseph Mangano. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The latest episode of Carl Grossman's program, Enviro Close-Up, is now available and is really worth your time. It focuses on the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance, known for short as OREPA, which has become a leader in getting action on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Nations with nuclear weapons, including the U.S., Russia, and China, have refused to ratify this treaty. And of significant importance is the fact that the communications media have almost totally not been mentioning the treaty's existence, despite the huge number of reports on the threats by Russia's President Putin to use nuclear weapons since his invasion of Ukraine. OREPA is active in the Nuclear Ban Treaty's collaborative, which is calling for the media to pay attention to the treaty. And you can learn much more about it by watching Enviro Close-Up. Of course, we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 596. An interesting book has just been published, Nuclear Nuevo Mexico, by Miria Gomez. She writes of the three waves of colonization New Mexico has undergone, Spanish, American, and nuclear, and how nuclear colonization has altered the state's past and continues to shape its future. We will link to both this book and an article with a lot more information about it. A reminder that the 600th episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is coming up right before Christmas, and I'm thinking about putting together at least some clips from the past that you might be interested in hearing all over again. If you have a favorite Nuclear Hot Seat moment, let me know. If you can include the episode number, and wow, it would be great if you could tell me exactly where it shows up in the episode, I'll do my best to include it. And yes, there will be a milestone announcement regarding Nuclear Hot Seat and its future coming up hopefully next week, if not two weeks from now, but I'm aiming for next week. Be there or be square. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, lcsun-news.com, reuters.com, theguardian.com, skyotovalleyguardian.com, ksdk.com, stltoday.com, utilitydive.com, capecodtimes.com, counterpunch.org, theenergymix.com, usac.army.mil, thebulletin.org, japantimes.co.jp, tokyo-np.co.jp, teleshoreenglish.net, nhk.or.jp, asahi.com, asiatimes.com, express.co.uk, taipeitimes.com, heraldscotland.com, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry, they are supposed to be regulating Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Penn-Scunter of Beyond Nuclear for her weekly nuclear hot seat, Hot Story. Hey, do not miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, because there's big news every week. And how can you guarantee that? We make it so easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There is a yellow opt-in box. Put in your first name and an email address, and shazam! You will get every week in your email one, count it, one email only, that includes the link and a short description of some of the information that is inside the episode. Easiest way to do it. On the flip side of that, wherever you get your podcast, we're there. So sign up and subscribe. You'll be glad that you did because you never want to miss a moment as we continue marching towards Armageddon. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything. Anything at all that you can do is going to be important, and we always appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, and hey, any other names you happen to want to throw around. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you... Acute radiation illness, such as the massive doses Chernobyl liquidators received, is an accident. But chronic radiation syndrome, such as we are exposed to at low doses from accidents, reactor releases, uranium mining, leftover bomb fallout, and a multitude of stupid nuke tricks, chronic radiation syndrome is a crime. That's it. You've got it. Your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.